two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. In this inaugural episode, we take up a variety of topics, including the role of in-house and outside counsel communications, Miranda warnings in the corporate sector, uh, important CFTC, Supreme Court decision, data, 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 an update to the corporate enforcement policy, and a wide variety of other topics. Please subscribe, rate, and review this latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Welcome to Two Gurus Talk Compliance. We are ready to talk all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG, governance, and whatever else is on our minds and the minds of the experts in our field. So this week, we are covering two Supreme Court cases that will affect compliance profession, the latest from the DOJ, and whistleblower trends. But first, Tom, how has your week been, and what is the most interesting development to you? So first of all, Christy, I've wanted to do this with you for a long time. I'm thrilled that we're finally going to be able to do this. We're going to have a ton of fun doing it. I hope our audience enjoys this as much as we do. I got interested, Christy, in a Supreme Court case around the attorney-client privilege. That is garnering more and more, particularly around white-collar cases now because of the DOJ's insistence of what it calls extraordinary cooperation that we'll talk about in in another segment. And I worry that things that you and I thought, either when we sat in the GC chair or we sat as outside counsel, thought were privileged, may not be. So the case involved, I'm not going to name the cases, but there's a split in circuits in the United States. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, where you practice, or where you reside, rather, in California, Oregon, and Washington State, have what's called the dual purpose test. And the dual purpose test says if there is a communication by an in-house counsel and it has two purposes, one business, one legal, it's protected. As long as there's some legal reason for the communication, whether it's oral, verbal, or in writing. The more narrow test is called the primary purpose test. And that is where I live in Texas, which is covered by the Fifth Circuit. And the primary purpose says test says that the primary purpose of the communication must be legal. There can be other items, but the primary purpose must be legal. I was excited in January because there was a case coming out of California which was going to rule on these competing tests. For reasons completely unclear to everyone, in early February, the U.S. Supreme Court revoked the certiorari grant after oral argument, extraordinarily rare, saying it was improvidently granted. So we don't know why. But it really raises a whole host of questions, and I've talked to some law professors and other practitioners, but here's the questions I want to pose. You're in California. You're an in-house counsel. You're a general counsel in a corporation, and you provide legal advice. Are you covered where you sit? Are you covered where you where the advice was given to? So say you're a multi-state corporation or a multinational corporation. 
and you're advising someone in another state, like Texas, or outside the United States? That's one question. Question two is, who is the ultimate receiver of the advice? They hold the privilege. The attorney doesn't hold the privilege. So is it the corporation's headquarters? Is it the corporation's corporate office? Is it the corporation where you sit? Is it the corporation where the advice goes? So we have all of these questions that I don't pretend to know the answer to, but it seems to me it makes it extraordinarily difficult for you as an in-house practitioner, legal practitioner, or if you're a compliance officer sitting in the legal department, what is the nature of your advice? And given the DOJ's pronouncements, starting with the Monaco and forward to the changes in the corporate enforcement policy, I know that have interested you, are we risking thinking something's covered and turning out it's not covered because the DOJ says, oh, no, that advice was used in a company in, headquartered in Texas or a company that had an office in Texas. It's not dual purpose. It's primary purpose. So we get it. Very confusing. You would think this would be as an important an issue for the Supreme Court to decide as there would have been, but we don't know the answer. So I have lots of questions, and I haven't found any answers yet. Now, given the split in the courts, what do you think is the best approach? And all those questions that you just posited, it seems to me that it would be for, frankly, in-house attorneys and in-house attorneys warning outside counsel to really separate business communications, scheduling, anything else from legal advice. How else are you going to make sure you meet all three of the different court interpretations of this? I'm not sure you can because every memo I wrote in-house was a mixture of legal and business because I took, if I knew the legal answer, say indemnities, I was an indemnity guru, so I would opine on indemnities. I was a genius at Texas indemnity law, but that's where it ended. So I was opining on indemnities from Louisiana to Delaware to Singapore, of course, basing it all on Texas law. Then you have to apply it to the facts. So that's a memo that has both business and legal in it. The primary purpose was to advise a business person on what to do, but it did have legal, if not legal citations, legal reasoning in it. So I'm not sure in the corporate context how you can separate that out. It's a little bit easier, I think, as outside counsel because you tend to be given a question or the senior partner will formulate the question he or she wants answered and you focus on that and you give them a legal opinion on that, clearly labeled legal opinion. Now, you may apply that to the facts, but it's a legal opinion. So I'm not quite sure if you can really break that out, in once again, on the in-house context, because everything you do is in the context of how do we do this deal? How do we stay out of trouble? How do we fix X? How do we remediate? How do we move forward? But it's always in the business setting. Yeah. More to come, except maybe not, because <laughs> the Supreme Court vacated it, really, without telling us what they wanted to do. And Speaking of the Supreme Court, the thing I wanted to talk about next is regarding an article in the Wall Street Journal about the Supreme Court taking up the consideration of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's funding. This comes out of the Fifth Circuit. Thank you again, Texans and Tom, for that. Basically, what happened was this PB, as it's normally called, was created in 2010, part of the Dodd-Frank financial overhaul. So its mission was to safeguard consumer welfare following the consumer crisis, the big two, but to fund the, the organization. The regulation allows the CFPB director to set the budget 
subject to various caps. So the director, him or herself, gets to choose the budget. The Fifth Circuit heard a case bought by payday lenders who were real unhappy with all of these new protections. Basically, they said that when the regulations were put in place by CFPB, that the funding was, un- they wanted it to be done through an annual congressional appropriations bill. And because that wasn't what happened, their funding was unconstitutional and therefore any rules that they made were unconstitutional or, or couldn't be put into place. Now, the Fifth Circuit agreed. So the Supreme Court decided to take this up. And in my opinion, if they agree with the Fifth Circuit, we're in real trouble with this, right? The only way to fund it would be through the annual congressional appropriations. And the Wall Street Journal starts to talk a bit about the politics behind this because the Democrats have long supported the CFPB, right? Thinking it's critical oversight for consumers against predatory financial activities where the Republicans have criticized it, and I'm quoting as an instrument of runaway government regulation with too much power, unquote. And there's a really interesting quote in this article from a man named Richard Hunt, who was the former head of the Consumer Bankers Association. And he says that there's a number of good, a good number of Republicans who don't want to give the CFPB any funding whatsoever and would like to see it dissolve. So the Mortgage Bankers Association's response has been, holy heck, man, if you undo everything the CFPR did, that is going to radically undermine the $13 trillion U.S. mortgage market. They actually said it could stop functioning normally. So this is a big deal. The payday lenders that came in, they were trying to respond to new laws that clamped down their ability to charge interest rates as high as 400%. So I think that the defunding of regulators and regulation is a pretty terrifying idea. And because especially the way that the payday lenders came at this to undermine the congressionally approved funding source and that everything they did in between was no longer valid, that scares me. What do you think? Oh, you're absolutely right. And that's the danger of these runaway courts, such as the Angels of Death and the Fifth Circuit, who are just will throw out from the bottom line, from the bo- bottom. I think we can, we can uh, clearly delineate politics on this side over here, so understood. Yeah, it, the Fifth Circuit scares me, truthfully. Chrissy, the next story I came across that intrigued me was a story from Compliance and Enforcement blog, which is from the New York University Program of Corporate Compliance Enforcement. It was an article about Auto is the first state to give us draft AI rules and regulations. Now, it's around insurance, but the article and the format of the draft will be near and dear, near if not dear to every compliance professional heart, because really the takeaways from the article, you need to perform a gap analysis based upon the laws as drafted, then you need to put a cross-functional management oversight committee in place and budget to take care of what the new law requires. But here's what intrigued me, and see if any of this sounds familiar. Number one, guiding principles, i.e. code of conduct around your AI. Number two, board and senior management oversight. Number three, a cross-functional governance committee. Number four, policies and procedures. Number five, training. Number six, cyber internal controls around cybersecurity. Number seven, a cyber breach response plan. Number eight, a complaint line, i.e. whistleblowers. Number nine, ongoing monitoring via auditing. And number 10, management of third-party risk. Now, hopefully that's going to sound very familiar to not only you, but a lot of listeners to this podcast. 
And it goes to, beyond the specifics of this law, something that you and I have talked about for several years now, that the compliance function in the CCO is perhaps the most well-suited corporate discipline to deal with these new initiatives because it's the basic framework of compliance that you and I have worked with for 15 years. And what they've laid out is basically every other compliance program I've ever worked with. Two, two additional thoughts. One is, because this is the first law, I think it's very important, but it will be copied the most. And although, once again, this is limited to insurance, I think it will wild, widely see distribution and adoption in non-insurance and non-regulated industries, i.e. U.S. public companies. So I hope the compliance professionals will look at this and start to be prepared, perhaps have discussions with your IT or create a cross-functional group in your organization because chat GPT is here to stay, AI is here to stay, and you need to be ready for whatever regulatory scheme you're going to find yourself under. Yeah, I think the most interesting thing about that article that you picked, Tom, was that the discussion was, yes, this is one little Colorado draft regulation. However, what they've seen previously, first of all, it's very compact, unlike the NIST standard. It's very understandable and prescriptive in a way that's useful, but that they, we've seen previously, these kind of laws get that mushroom effect. Everybody else takes them on. And most compliance programs just don't have good frameworks for things like AI or for big data, even though we've been using that word for a long time. So I think that this can be very useful, and I do hope that it crosses over and becomes something people use. Christy, you got interested in our friends at Google. <laughs> well, the DOJ got interested in our friends at Google, not me specifically. Let's be very clear about that. But the next article comes from Yahoo Finance. So it's a short article, but it was fascinating to me. So apparently it relates to the DOJ urging a federal judge to sanction Google's parent Alphabet for its practice of setting employee chats to auto-delete despite promising to preserve records required for litigation. So the DOJ alleges that Google destroyed written records that are pivotal to their antitrust suit related to internet search dominance. Basically, it's alleged that Google employees routinely discussed substantive and sensitive business, that's a quote, using an instant messaging product that deleted chats automatically after 24 hours. So the evidence sought by the DOJ relates to the 2020 lawsuit they have that says Google maintained unlawful web exclusionary business that made it so they shut out. Despite the federal rules for litigation requiring Google to suspend that chat deletion in 2019, according to the DOJ, they simply let the chats get auto-deleted anyway. And the government said that Google only committed to permanently preserving the employee chat's messages this week hmm, after the threat of the motion for sanctions. So the DOJ believes that the chats would have contained especially relevant information because it contained candid conversations and discussions between executives. Now, I find this so interesting because from a couple of angles. Number one, I worked on the LIBOR investigation to the financial crimes scandal earlier 10 years ago, and the best and most fascinating evidence was 100% from the Bloomberg chats between individuals. They're casual. People don't think that they're being recorded, and we get the best stuff from that so I think that the DOJ probably has a point. And the second thing related more to compliance officers is we are, I am seeing in my Inspark Compliances practice more and more auto-deletion because of the mushrooming of data, people never taking out their emails. I think my husband's computer on Outlook last time I checked had 5,184 unreviewed emails. You can't just have that stuff in there forever. 
But we do run the risk, especially if you don't have a strong litigation hold practice. How do you manage this kind of thing? And Tom, what do you think? First of all, if I could ever get to 5,000 emails, <laughs> I would probably shut down and have a vacation for a week because I'm at 25,000 emails. <gasps> no, you're not. Oh, no. So I just I'm one of those clean inbox people. I have to have it under 50 or I go nuts. <laughs> yeah, you should see my office. But just a couple of different thoughts. Number one, an auto-delete policy is a, certainly a reasonable business, but you always have to make exceptions when litigation is either threatened or ongoing. And that is the responsibility of, of someone in legal, someone in IT. There was a clear breakdown in communications. Yes, it may have been nefarious. If, when I was the, the DOJ, that's what I'd be screaming from the highest hill. But I've been on the other side of that from time to time. And it just is nothing more than a lack of internal communications. Someone in legal has to have a handle on that, and they have to make sure that the automatic auto-deletion function is disabled on whatever the selected computers are, the selected individuals. You can have a targeted focus. You don't have to do a company-wide, but there has to be some response. But the bigger question for me, Christy, and you've, certainly done many more of these investigations than I have. Every time I talk to someone who specializes in internal investigation and or negotiating with the regulators, they say the single most important thing is your credibility. And this usually the first question is, are the documents tied down? And if you can answer that and answer truthfully and be correct, that's going to build you credibility, which will enhance your relationship through the pendency of that particular investigation and maybe throughout your relationship with that regulator. But if you say one thing and your client has done another, you have big egg on your face and it's a step backwards. And so from that sort of dynamic, all of the people who have done that tell me they, they absolutely have to make sure they can't just say to an associate, make sure this is done or just check on it. It has to be checked on, it has to be verified, and it has to be continually monitored. It's just, it's too important. And just the headline of the article you circulated was bad enough. And it makes Google look like they are doing something that they shouldn't have, whether or not they did or didn't. You've got to pay attention to this. Someone has to be responsible for this in-house, and it has to be accomplished. You can't just say, rid me of this meddlesome priest. And I actually go fire that meddlesome priest. Yep, absolutely. I have long wondered and worried about Miranda warnings in the corporate investigative context. Now, we have something in the corporate world called the Upjohn warning, and everyone who's ever done an investigation understands what the Upjohn warnings are. And the Upjohn warnings tell a witness that the lawyer represents the client and the client holds the privilege and the lawyer does not represent the witness. Miranda, of course, is a criminal procedural warning which says anything you say can and will be held against you in the court of law. Dick Casson has also been talking about this for a long time. And in a recent blog post, he talked about the Upjohn component of these warnings. And he suggested that there be two perhaps additional additions to the Upjohn warning. Number one was that the lawyer add that the company will cooperate with the government in any investigation and that if there is a referral of information from the company to the government, 
there's an increased likelihood the individual, i.e. the witness, may be prosecuted. I think those are good steps. I'm much more concerned outside counsel and perhaps even in-house counsel essentially being deputized to do internal investigations. We've never had a clear answer to this. 20 years ago, the huge question was whether companies had to waive the attorney-client privilege. And in the wake of Enron, the DOJ said, we'll never ask companies to do that. And they did exactly that. And it, the bar pushed back and we got something straightened out. But once again, we're going to talk about this and your thoughts on the changes to the corporate enforcement policy. But extraordinary cooperation is moving towards a line I'm not comfortable with without a disclosure. Because if our company has self-disclosed and we know for our own self-interest to get the best result possible, we have to turn over information. Um, Literally, when it becomes known to us, number one, it doesn't give time for reflection. And every lawyer or law firm I've known, when something significant comes in, they sit down with the team, they sit down with a senior partner, it may be elevated up within the firm, it's so significant. And then you have a talk with a client. And you explain to the client, here's what we found, here's how we think we need to respond, but we've got to have to tell the government about it. Those sorts of reflections that I think are an important part of practicing law may be gone now, and that's one loss. But the bigger loss to me is that the witness may not understand that if I voluntarily sit down with you without counsel present and answer all your questions, I may give you information which ends up putting me in jail. And no criminal procedural warning, no civil procedural warning. So it seems to me we're moving towards an area, and some federal courts have touched on the, or at least asked the question of whether the DOJ is deputizing private law firms as external counsel in some sense, or even internal investigations. We haven't had a ruling on that, but we may be moving closer to that. And I know that's something you've had to do. I just, I feel unease in all of these areas. Yeah, 100%. I think that it is really terrifying when you think about being an individual in an internal investigation. You don't, I've never seen anybody really have the sense that they might go to jail or that their information that they're giving their in-house counsel or goodness me, an HR investigator, right? Who doesn't even have a law degree that's doing some kind of investigation that leads somewhere else, right? Because that happens all the time that we are allowing that to become essentially the case that we hand over. And then they say, great, we've already got all this evidence. It is deeply uncomfortable to me as somebody who worked in white collar crime defense and who's worked in house. I just, I don't know realistically at what point you are obligated. Let's say that there's an obligation, right? We have the Upjohn warning. We know when that's supposed to be. But when this comes to kind of Miranda versions of it with the criminality element, when does that trigger? And how can we even really logically tell someone or know we need to tell someone that this is happening. I think the practicality of this is very difficult to think about. Yes, to all of the above. And I guess I mentioned court cases. What happens when a judge says, throw something out or changes the dynamics dramatically? Once again, I don't pretend to know the answers. It just seems like to me we're heading in that area. We had a huge announcement in January from Kenneth Polite 
around the corporate enforcement policy. So I know this is really interesting to you. So why don't you go through it for us? Oh, heavens. Yeah, there is a lot of talk about this, but one of my favorite reviews of it came from the compliance lady, someone who I haven't come across before, but I like her name. So it's Sophia L. Mansouri. I'm hopefully saying her name correctly. And she has a blog where she wrote an article that says, Justice Department sweetens the deal for honest companies. 75% reduction in fines for self-disclosure and cooperation. And this is where this extraordinary cooperation comes in. So basically, the CEP is frequently called the Corporate Enforcement Policy. came into effect in 2016, expanded in 2017. It was a pilot originally. And basically, it gives credit for and reduces fines for companies that self-report FCPA violations. So the revisions, it used to be that 50% was really the top. But what they have done is they have said, if you have extraordinary cooperation, then they can have up to 75% reduction in fines. So that's if you self-disclose, basically have a good compliance program or create one in the wake of whatever happened and provide this extraordinary cooperation. Now, if you did not self-report, fear not, all is not lost, in cooperation or something along those lines, and fixing the problem with better compliance programs can still result in 50% reduction in fines. Now, this new program has been controversial. When the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics wrote about this, there was a gentleman, an attorney called John May, who commented, and I just have to quote it because it's, it's far too good not to quote directly. So he said, more nonsense from the DOJ, 25 years of carrots have been a complete bust. So now they are offering more delicious carrots. They just don't get it. They could offer chocolate cake with vanilla ice cream and it wouldn't make a difference. The board and C-suite are far more afraid of their reputation, their jobs, shareholder suits, and falling stock prices than they are about the small chance that they will get caught and have to what? pay a fine and other penalties that represent one fiftieth of their income for the year and the likelihood that the worst sanction they'll face is a DP. The delicious carrots thing, right? It's such a great visual. Tom, does this move anything? Are these delicious carrots or are they actually chocolate cake that changes the corporate analysis internally? What do you think? First, we have to start with John May. John is perhaps the biggest curmudgeon in the white collar defense department. And if he didn't exist, he'd have to be created. <laughs> because somebody has to say that, and he does, and he says it all the time about everything. And so, although that was high art for John May, he's consistent in that message. Where I disagree with John is there may not be less, or I can't really speculate on the amount more or less of bribery and corruption, but I can say there's more compliance. And I don't think he sees company trying to do business ethically and in compliance as a positive. The second thing is, it seems to me the DOJ is what they want is self-disclosure. Self-disclosure more than stopping this because they believe, one, if they do get self-disclosure, the answer only benefit will be to self-disclose. And if it's all sticks, nobody's ever going to self-disclose. And December of 2021, the Biden administration released their strategy on combating corruption, elevating anti-corruption to a or corruption to a national security issue, and they have pumped a lot of money and will continue to do so in anti-corruption in a wide variety of areas beyond our FCPA remit, or at least where we started with our FCPA remit. And part of that is partnering with corporations to stop corruption through self-disclosure. 
We've seen that in other areas, export control and money laundering. So we're seeing a movement towards that by our government. And if self-disclosure to help the overall fight is the goal, I think this could move the needle forward. If it's the John May perspective, you know what John thinks. And I would just say, God bless John, because he's a good friend. But your question, that's the question I usually start all of these debates around this update. Has it moved the needle? I think it has for a couple of reasons. Number one, the 75%, that's a real discount. That's real money. But there's a little kicker in there that's not a little more subtle, which is the following. It's 75% off the low range of the sentencing guidelines. I have studied the sentencing guidelines for 15 years. I'm still not sure I understand them, but I do know that when you do the formula, whatever that is, you come out with a range of low to high. And if you have engaged in egregious conduct, more likely than not, you will be somewhere in the middle. Very few companies are at the high level because they've engaged in some cooperation by then or at the highest level. So say you have a range of 50 million to 150 million, and the mid-range would be 100 million. If you get 75% off the low end, 50 million, as opposed to 50% off the middle range, 100 million, that's $25 million. Or excuse me, that's 12.5 million you would have to pay. So your savings would be 87.5 million. That's real money. And to me, that's real incentive. So 75% discount from the bottom end of the sentencing range I think that has a multiplier effect, and I think that puts real dollars in the back in the pockets of companies if they self-disclose and then meet the other requirements, extraordinary cooperation, extensive remediation, and profit disgorgement. So I think it can move the needle, but if you have John's perspective, it's just another series of carrot cakes. (laughs) What are your thoughts? I tend to be a little bit cynical, but I do think it benefits compliance practitioners regardless, because I think whether or not there is a self-disclosure from what I have seen in my work, the scramble to make the compliance program better tends to be the first thing anyway, because if you don't self-disclose, you still know what happened and you still know you could get caught. And your best remedy for that is to have a good compliance program, because part two, of course, is Number one, did you self-disclose? Question two is, did you have a good compliance program at the time or after? Did you invest in it? So I think regardless, it keeps the pressure on because any kind of announcement like this gets people talking, gets articles written, and that it helps the compliance people to talk to their boards, have another... Next, I was very intrigued by an article in the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. If you don't subscribe to this, do it's free... It's got some great articles on all forms of corporate governance, some in our compliance area, but a wide, much wider area as well. And there was an article on third-party risk management oversight from the board perspective. And you rarely see articles about third-party risk management oversight from the board perspective. So I was very intrigued and even excited to see this article. But it went in a little bit different direction than I was anticipating but it's consistent with the board's requirement of oversight as defined by Caremark because the article really said this is not about third-party sales agents, commission sales agents, distributors, or anyone else selling. This is every third party. 
This is ESG third parties. This is supply chain third parties. This is to the nth degree third parties, second, third, fourth, five, and six levels down. This is just-in-time suppliers. These are alternative suppliers. It's anyone who has a contract with your company, and yes, that can be a customer. You typically don't think of a customer as a third party. There's money laundering risks. So it gave a framework for the board to properly oversee third parties, but not limited to third parties on the sales side of your business in high-risk countries. So I thought it was a really good article from that point. It was a good reminder for me that that's the role of the board. It's not to look at, are we paying too much of a commission in outer Mongolia to this agent? It is, you need to look at all of your third parties and you need to look at it from an oversight perspective and you need to make sure the senior executives are managing the risks. Anything from your perspective on this? I would point to those who have practiced in the conflict mineral space since Dodd-Frank came into being. And they actually were mandated by law to do that, literally down to the mine to know where that mineral came from. And universally, they said two things. One, as you said, it's not an, it's a simple exercise, but it's not easy. But number two, when they did the exercise, they realized from a business process perspective, there were multiple redundancies. There were overlap. They were sometimes paying inconsistent prices for the same product, sometimes from the same mine because they have different contracts. And so they were able to bring a standardization in the business process arena. And so from the business process perspective, I think it's an important step to take, even if it's a royal pain in the wazoo to have to do it. You're good. I got the same message, but I'm still hearing you and seeing your beautiful face. I, actually, I think they're all great. Probably chocolates, just because I'm a chocoholic. But chocolates, cookies, these were pretty good, though. Lots of food. So we had our one of our annual reports from NAVEX. This one was their report on the annual whistleblower landscape. There's just a couple of things I wanted to highlight for you, Christy, and perhaps get your thoughts on. We had an increase in number of whistleblower reports to the SEC. We had a decrease in whist internal whistleblower reporting before going to the SEC. Normally, I would say that's a troubling trend, but it went from about 78% to 75%. If it continues to go downwards, I would say then that's something we need to look at. One of the biggest reasons given for the increase in number of reports was allegedly working from home and people not being in the office, being siloed at home and not being able to get relief or anyone to listen to them or those sorts of things that, that maybe happened a little bit more. I'm going to say that was early on in the pandemic because I think the compliance profession certainly learned how to respond to work from home. They've learned how to respond to return to work and hybrid work environments. The engagement that I see internal to corporations is greatly increased because we had to, whether it be Zoom, whether it be a phone call, whether it be a check-in. And so I applaud those. I've worked from home since I, since 2010. I'm very comfortable with that. But some people feel like they, they either you either should be in the office or you need to be in the office. The recommendations that I would got or garnered from this is number one, Make sure your internal whistleblowing system is as good as you can make it. Of course, that means your whistle, anonymous reporting line, but it's also your middle managers. They're your front line of your whistleblower reporting line, 
And those are the people that need to be talking to their direct reports. Because if you have engendered trust between middle management and their direct reports, that's where you're going to see most of the information. And you can't ignore it. Once the information comes in, it has to be evaluated, triaged. It has to be then sent to an appropriate level of review, whether that's, as you said a little bit earlier, the non-lawyer HR investigator, whether it's the Christie Grant Hart, or whether we got to call the chairman of the audit committee now. That has to be done. Then on the investigative front, whatever the allegation is, you've got to do something, I think, within two weeks. Now, I understand if it's a more significant issue that's going to take more time, but you have to be in a position to make that decision. Yes, I have to call Christy. We have to call Christy now, and she has to get over here now, and guess what? She's going to drop the next three months of her life if it's that sort of. Uh, so I think responding quickly, keeping the whistleblower in the loop to the extent you can, keeping that relationship, not simply saying there'll be no retaliation, but making damn well sure there's no retaliation are all a part of not only engendering trust, but maintaining trust. And then finally, I was with a guy yesterday, and he wants to start a leadership class. And he's a wonderful gentleman, served in Vietnam, older than me. And he said, Tom, I'm just, I'm just tired. I'm tired of these people who they feel like they're entitled. And I'm like, oh, that's great. That's the leadership you're going to say? Don't be entitled. Get off your ass and do what I did in the 1960s. That's going to go over like a lead balloon. Quit. Yeah. Let's stop telling people they're stupid, slow, lazy, or other because they don't have the same values that I have or that you have or the gener- because we're from g- different generations. And meet the millennial. Bullying is one of the most significant increases in reporting. I would have never reported bullying if one of I knew what it was, and I did a couple of times get pretty well tongue-lashed in the law firm days, but that's just something you had to that's just something you had to put up with. You don't have to anymore, and more importantly, the employees are not going to take it anymore. The generations have changed, and the values are different, and we, me and you, we're the ones that have to adapt, not them. And so I think it's important for every compliance professional to understand that, and if you're not tuned into that, don't get thee to a nunnery. Get thee to a, a Spark Consulting class on dealing with millennials. So, indeed. Let me just add one little nuance that came up last week where, you know what a White Castle Burger is? White Castle Burger violated the Illinois biometric law, which says that if you take people's personal biometrics, fingerprints, DNA, that sort of thing, without consent, that's a violation of that law. That was not the question. The question was, every time you take that information and email it, talk about it, transfer it, that's a separate violation of the Illinois law. And White Castle is now on the hook for $16.1 billion in fines due to White Castle employees for its violation of the Illinois biometric law. Now, that ruling, fingerprints, weight, DNA, who knows, but anything biometric. And that was from the Illinois Supreme Court. There is no further appeal in the state of Illinois, so that's what they owe. How about for, obviously, companies headquartered in Illinois? How about if you have a business? What if you have a McDonald's franchise 
and you're a California corporation, but you just happen to have some Illinois stores, or you're a national retailer, you fingerprint everybody for shoplifting purposes. Did you get consent for that? Maybe not. So that's one more example, and you're absolutely right. If there is one area in this country, that two areas that cry out for some sort of congressional oversight, internet, and this, data privacy, data protection. And we've got to have something because companies literally are going to have 50 different laws in the U.S. alone, or 51 if you count D.C. So it's a huge problem. It's only going to get worse. I don't know when Congress will. I'm glad I'm not a data privacy lawyer in the United States. I will throw out a shout out to Compliance Week, who next or this month now is going to have a full special report on data privacy laws across the United States. So I hope our listeners, if you subscribe to Compliance Week, you'll check that out. But you're right. This is a huge problem. The EU invalidation of the Biden executive order is a huge problem. We both work for multinational corporations. If you can't share your data from Europe, you're in a world of trouble. And it's a huge mess, and we don't seem to be pointing towards a way out of it at this point. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this inaugural episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. If you have an article that you would like Chrissy and I to review on this podcast, please send us an email. We have our LinkedIn profiles on the show notes, and you can connect to us through LinkedIn. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode as much as Christy and I enjoyed bringing it to you. We look forward to visiting with you again on another episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. This podcast is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.